there is a few things that I looked for as an investor and then those things become amplified when you're actually not just making sort of one tenth of your bets on it, but a full bet on it. Your, your sort of a personal career versus a sort of finance investment. And I really wanted to make sure I got it right. So I'll tell you the things that resonated with me and that really made me pick HyperSign. And it's not just the really cool name. There was a lot more than, than just that. I, what I, w- one of the key things, I'll sort of speak about three areas. The first is the sort of uh, product in the market. The, well, actually four areas. The second is uh, the vision, which is always a very, very important thing. The third is w- really the people you choose to work with, which I think is immensely valuable. When you have, if you have the um, ability to choose the people you work with, it makes a giant, giant difference. And then the last thing is really the overlap between the company's needs and my skill set. And those were all the sort of things that I was I was looking for. How are we doing out there folks? This is your host with the most Kenny Vaughn and I am back in action with my partner in crime. What is up everybody? It is Sophia. I play for Team Breakline and welcome back to the arena. And before we we kick off this week's episode, we want to start a fun new tradition. We absolutely love it when you guys take the time to rate and review our show and share it with your friends and family. So I would love to give a shout out to Courtney, who left us this review for five stars on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's go. Can I give a quick do a drum roll? Uh, Do it. (laughs) Okay, Courtney said... These podcasts have been such a great source of inspiration as well as education. The guests are vulnerable in sharing their paths to success and demonstrate that those paths aren't always linear. The hosts are energetic and engaging and guide the conversation thoughtfully. Highly recommend. Thank you so much, Courtney, for taking the time to rate and review our show. If you would like to be featured as our reviewer for next week, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts and get those reviews in. So, Kenny, let's talk about our friend Charles. Who are we hearing from today? So we had the privilege of hearing from Charlie Newark French, and he is the Chief Operating Officer at HyperScience. And before we just dive into the details of of this conversation, we're we're just super thankful, first and foremost, for the partnership uh, that we have as an organization with HyperScience. If you haven't heard of HyperScience yet, I would highly encourage you to check them out. Uh, but their mission is to connect human and artificial intelligence to solve tomorrow's automation challenges. So as you listen uh, to Charlie just share his experience, you're going to hear what that means on a very granular basis. Part of the reason that I was excited about this conversation too is Charlie's coming in at C-suite level as a chief operating officer. And in this conversation, he just peels back the curtain on his thought process as he was choosing where to take his talents as a senior leader within the organization, thought that was tremendously insightful. So very cool part of the, the conversation and would love to just hear any thoughts that you took away from this one. Yeah, I mean, this was a cool conversation because he we kind of just jumped around to a bunch of hot button topics. So, you know, we were talking product market fit, you know, various investments he's made, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, and kind of the way that he dissects those decisions. He also was describing really the future of automation and how he sees that affecting um, not just the tech industry, but, you know, the economy at large. And I think that 
as you are listening to this conversation, it, I mean, I personally learned so much. I was just taking notes Agreed. left and right. Um, you know, this is a perspective that we typically don't get to peel back the curtain on. So super grateful that Charlie joined us in the arena. Uh, with that being said, I don't know about you, Sophia, but you think we should give the listeners what they came here for? Let's do it. We will see you guys on the other side. Charlie, it is such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to this and uh, building a bunch of questions. So Charlie, as we kick things off, um, the folks on the line have seen your bio, but could you just talk to us a little bit about your background, bring us up to present day? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the long version. Uh, if the uh, Not too long, don't worry. Uh, but if the, uh, the bio is a short version, I'll give you the slightly longer version. Um, I grew up in England. I don't hide that too well. Um, uh, and I actually was, when I was younger, I was a coder. Um, turns out I was a very bad coder, but that's sort of where my interest in the um, uh, software space uh, originally came from. I was coding um, when I was uh, sort of uh, 12 years old to 17 years old, just coding websites for local high street uh, stores, gift stores, accounting shops, uh, that, sort of, uh, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, undergrad at Oxford, and then I decided that um, uh, the US was a substantially better place to build a, uh, uh, a life and a career. So I moved over to here. Um, I was at McKinsey & Company at the time, um, mostly working with uh, tech companies. Um, uh, uh, and I worked with a bunch of um, uh, um, hardware manufacturers. Um, then went to Vodafone for a little bit and did M&A, which is where I first sort of got an interest in doing uh, the investing side of, uh, of, uh, of what I do. So I was acquiring uh, startups just like Hyperscience, which I'll speak about in a second, um, but sort of uh, um, uh, mid to late stage startups I was acquiring there for Vodafone to have as uh, what we called value added services then, but what nowadays we just call apps. Um, so they wanted to offer apps on their phone uh, mapping services, uh, uh, if then, uh, if this, then that sort of uh, software. Um, uh, did my grad graduate degree at um, at Harvard. Uh, met a ton of uh, uh, people in my network now that I still work with, which was uh, uh, where I really decided to stay in the U.S. at that point. That was ten years ago now. Um, and then over the last uh, um, uh, 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 over that period of time, I've sort of been um, jumping in and out of. Uh, what I refer to as growth investing or others might call late stage uh, venture investing um, sort of series uh, uh, C, series D, series E software companies um, and then uh, actually in, in um, uh, companies themselves. So I um, invested in about 10 companies, growth stage company, well exactly 10 companies, uh, growth stage companies. Uh, had the full spectrum of outcome, um, some things that I'm immensely proud of, two couple of uh, uh, IPOs that were north of $10 billion, uh, and then some absolute disasters as well. Um, so I don't know if that's going to come up, but I've had the full spectrum that I can sort of talk to. Um, it's easy to smile about that now. It's much harder to smile about that in the past, in the moment. Um, I went in to run one of my portfolio, portfolio companies for a while, a video conferencing company actually called Fuse. I um, uh, did that for two years in San Francisco. Uh, then that was acquired by a company in Boston, which is where I uh, moved for a little bit. Um, a cloud-based PBX company, voice over IP. 
uh, and I moved back to the East Coast at that point. And then I have been living um, in New York uh, um, uh, with my partner here in, uh, in Manhattan, in Chelsea, uh, for the last uh, four or five years. Um, uh, a year and a half ago, I joined Hyperscience. Um, I'm going to talk, a, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll talk a lot about that today, um, but uh, joined as a chief operating officer. We are a very traditional series C stage company, um, enterprise software. Our average deal size is about half a million dollars. Um, what we do, if you haven't heard of us, which if you have, it's remarkable and we're doing some uh, uh, advertising pretty well. Um, or maybe not because uh, the buyers are just very big uh, uh, so, uh, enterprises. Um, what we do is we help with um, uh, document-based processes or paper-based processes. Uh, so things, um, we actually work a lot with the VA. Uh, we work with the Social Security Administration. Uh, we work with the uh, Housing and Urban Development. Um, there's a few government agencies we work with. But we do things like processing mortgages or processing disability claims or processing insurance claims or when you join a bank, um, Fidelity is one of our customers. Any of that paper-based process where you have to sort of prove who you are or prove your income or prove your uh, place of work or uh, provide a whole load of, base of, uh, load of data, um, we help process that data. Um, it uh, uh, is a um, uh, uh, very... Um, manual based processes these right now and we sort of try to automate them to end up in in better outcomes for uh, for the end customer for our customers end customer been doing that for a year and a half we're 165 people um i run the uh, go to market side of the world um so everything but product and engineering which tells you how bad of an engineer i once upon a time was um so sales marketing customer success and um finance and operations uh yeah that's my overview bethany Thank you so much, Charlie. And one of the things that we talked about as we were preparing for this conversation was the fact that you, when you were looking for your, your next step, you looked at yes. three different companies. You did a yeah. massive scan about, um, to see what was out there, which I thought was, um, was so smart. And, um, and you said none of them came close to hyperscience. Can you talk yeah. to us a little bit more about what made this, so, this company so compelling for you? Yeah, um, so I, most of my um, time investing uh, has been really analyzing the growth stage of a company. So the series B to series E. Um, and a lot of that is on what I call go to market, uh, sales, marketing, um, uh, post sales. Um, so I took that a lot, a lot of what I'd learned um, and applied it to myself where I was my own uh, SDR, my own account executive, my own um, uh, VP of sales where the product was effectively me and the company that was buying it was uh, any uh, target um, uh, company that I was looking at. I did it sort of in an incredibly thorough way, um, built a list of 200 companies that I wanted to meet, uh, ended up meeting with uh, uh, 50 uh, CEOs exactly, had a good sense of the kind of role I wanted. Um, and when I did those meetings, those meetings, as I think everyone in this call is probably aware, any, any interview is really a very much a two-way process. Um, and the process for me was to really work out whether it was uh, um, uh, a fit for me. Um, there is a few things that I looked for as an investor, and then those things become amplified when you're actually not just making sort of one tenth of your bets on it, but a full bet on it. Your, your sort of uh, personal career versus um, a sort of finance investment. Um, and I really wanted to make sure I got it right. 
so I'll tell you the things that resonated with me uh, and that really made me pick hyperscience. Um, and it's not just the really cool name. There was a, a lot more than, uh, than just that. Um, I, what I, one of the key things, uh, I'll sort of speak about three areas. The first is the sort of uh, product in the market. Um, the, well, actually four areas. The second is uh, the vision, which is always a very, very important thing. Um, the third is really the people you choose to work with, um, which I think is immensely valuable. Uh, when you have, if you have the um, ability to choose the people you work with, uh, it makes a giant, giant difference. Um, and then uh, the last thing um, is really the overlap between the company's needs uh, and my skill set. Um, and those were all the sort of things that I was, uh, was looking for. So on the product um, and market side, uh, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of investors that have made a ton of money investing in what they call zero billion dollar markets. Uh, one of the best investors in the world, Vinod Kosla, um, uh, in, um, from Coastal Ventures in uh, the West Coast invests in zero billion dollar markets, goes out and invests in things that don't yet exist and creates them. Um, that's definitely not my skill set and uh, I didn't have any massive appetite to do that. So one of my first criteria was looking for something that was real, a problem that was being faced right now, um, uh, a market that existed. So these processes, um, they're very tangible processes. Every one of us on, uh, on this call has been involved in one of these processes. I filed for a mortgage for this apartment uh, 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 nine months ago, paper-based process. Um, if ever you've done a dent in your car, paper-based process. Um, if ever you've done a visa application, paper-based process. Um, I'm giving you ones that are particularly miserable processes to give you a sense of the kind of pain associated with those processes. Um, but there's a giant market. We estimate the market is anywhere, just for processing these things, right, is anywhere from a $60 billion market to a $300 billion market. Uh, and these processes, the more I learned about it, uh, are incredibly manual. Um, so uh, whether it's emailing in documents, whether it's uh, physically sending documents, um, the process for it typically is either printing them out or opening a, um, a letter, physically taking that letter and putting it in some box that is a box to say this is an insurance claim or this is um, uh, uh, an, assure, um, an application for a premium um, or the various different boxes you go in. Someone then scans that document and often the processes are so bad that if you send it in as a PDF on, an, on, on a um, uh, website or via an email, someone prints it and then rescans it. Uh, this is how bad these processes are. Um, uh, and then you have data keyers literally looking at two screens, um, one screen of an image and another screen of a database. So it was a real pain, a giant market that was suffering from a real pain and that pain was tangibly experienced by really everyone in, uh, in the US, um, everyone in developed markets. Um, and that, that was a compelling thing. Um, also the product worked. Uh, I don't know how many people on this call have ever found themselves in a scenario where you're selling something that is really uh, vaporware or sort of an idea, um, but I had no appetite for that. Um, so there was that. The next thing which was a re really the key thing that pushed me over I think was um, the vision. Um, and I'm sure we'll speak more about sort of my uh, bets on the way the world will go. None of them are particularly original, but they are sort of uh, um, uh, relatively uh, uh, have strong views on them. Uh, but my thought is that a lot of the way that um, uh, customers are served today, end customers, the likes of all of us on this call, um, on what are document-based processes are pretty negative outcomes. 
um, uh, if you think of filing for an insurance claim, if you're filing for an insurance claim, it probably, unless you're part of a very, very privileged part of the population, is a meaningful thing for you. Maybe it's the way you get to work, it's the car you get to work in, or it's um, the security of your house or something. Uh, and those processes can take anywhere from three weeks if it's really positive to months on end uh, if it's negative. Um, I, like I said, we work with the VA. Um, processes there take over a year on average uh, from, from sort of a, uh, one of their multiple uh, various uh, paper-based processes um, starting to actually settling in anything. Uh, and that's a pretty miserable outcome for people. So the vision that, uh, that I sort of... Um, uh, heard at that point or my way of articulating it was very much we do the beginning pro uh, areas of those processes but we want to do the end-to-end -end processes just the back office not the front office but if you imagine AIG is a customer of ours and we do insurance claims um, our aim is very much to have AIG advertising to their customers something along the lines of in five or ten years right we're not there we have a very real product and we're going to an, uh, a bigger product um, but the vision there is, is very much to have AIG advertising to their customers, something along the lines of 82% of insurance claims paid out in seven minutes uh, or something like that, right? That's just made up numbers entirely. Uh, but something that's wildly unachievable today with manual processes, that if automation can really deliver on what it promises, uh, if machine learning can really deliver on what it uh, says it can, uh, would be a radically be uh, beneficial outcome for AIG's end customers. And you can imagine that same thing for a bunch of different industries. So that vision was a very important thing for me. Um, I think automation uh, is, is an area which we as a society have to navigate really um, carefully. Um, and I think that this is an instance where uh, there is clear benefit to society if we get this one right. Um, the next area, and I'll sort of speed up because I'm sure there's a bunch of questions, but um, I think integrity of the people you work with is something that I really look for. Um, I've worked with some wildly successful companies and some wildly unsuccessful companies. And uh, the consistent thing that I've enjoyed working with is good people. I mean, good natured people that when the good times come or the bad times come, you're working with people that when you leave the room, you can trust uh, and you know, they're going to make the right decision. You know, they're looking out for each other and they're looking out for you and they're looking out for the sort of good of, um, uh, the rest of the company. Uh, and I've definitely worked in scenarios. Um, uh, I hope I don't have to talk about them today, but well, that isn't true and it's uh, miserable. So that was a key thing for me. Uh, and I wanted to meet a bunch of the leadership team, the board and check that we were all on the same page on how we would approach certain uh, situations. And I think in today's climate, that is um, ever more important. Um, it's always important, but it uh, feels particularly important right now. Um, and then I had a fourth uh, area, didn't I? Um, uh, I'm trying to remember what my fourth criteria oh, was. Oh, Charlie, it was the intersection between the needs of the yes, company and your Yes, exactly, system. which is also an important one. Thank you, Bethany. Um, the area that the company was most nascent on was the go-to-market side, um, which is what I wanted to, to look at. So all of the sales at that point, when I joined, we were $5 million in revenue. Um, uh, all of the sales at that point were what I would describe as leadership-led. Um, uh, great product referred into a customer by a, um, uh, an investor and then a strong leadership team when and closed that deal. Uh, and what we focused on, which I believe is sort of an area that I very much enjoy, um, is building out a much more scalable, um, uh, repeatable pro series of processes. 
So it was really that combination of product, vision, quality people, and what I brought, thought that I could uh, bring to the table. That I, I literally had a spreadsheet ranking everything. And uh, after I got out my first meeting um, with HyperScience, it was very clear to me that uh, uh, the spreadsheet uh, was going to break with how great this one was. That's so helpful, Charlie, to get your framework for how you evaluated this opportunity. What are some of the less obvious metrics or KPIs that you use to assess hyperscience? So that like the overarching framework is really helpful. What was the data? Um, what sort of quantitative measures were you looking? You talked about size of the market. You talked about yeah. revenue. What else were you looking at? Yeah, so I'll speak about the, a little bit about this one uh, in terms of how I look at investment as well. Um, but with hyperscience, I was referred by an investor. Um, I knew the Gartner um, analyst that had written about hyperscience. And I was actually uh, a good friend of mine on the West Coast, um, uh, Rafi, uh, uh, didn't invest. So he looked at the opportunity and didn't invest. So I, I felt like between that, my meeting with the leadership team, that I was really able to understand the sort of uh, things that were in great shape in the more nascent areas, which, as I said, was the go-to-market side. Um, I was able to stand that, uh, understand that very much. Uh, look, I think um, there's a few things that you can look at that really give you a signal of whether a company is, is, a, is doing well in the sort of Series B, Series C stage, which uh, is where we were when I joined. Um, we're now sort of Series C, raising Series D uh, stage. Um, but I think the, one of the first things, key metrics, is uh, churn. Um, does a customer actually stay? And I think churn at a series A stage company is you can get away with it. Um, by the time you really become a series B or series C stage company, you, you, you're expected to know what you're doing. Um, and HyperScience didn't have many customers when I joined. Um, uh, we had very large customers, but um, uh, our average deal size is half a million dollars to give you a sense. Um, uh, uh, but none of them had churned and they'd been there for a while. Um, and uh, the consistent thing was I heard was that they used the product and they loved the product. It worked extremely well. Um, that's really the best gauge of product you can get is churn. Um, I think the next thing that I looked for uh, was gross margin. Um, and why gross margin? Uh, gross margin to me, which uh, I won't tell you the number. Well, I, in fact, I, there's no problem telling you. It's in, in the sort of high 80s, 86%, 87%. Gross margin. The reason that gross margin is, is interesting is, is really twofold. Um, the first is it gives you a signal of whether you're joining what I would refer to as a product company or a services company. Um, and you should consider them both extremely differently. If it's a product company, the idea is you have a code base, you put it out there, and that is somewhat repeatable. I can go and sell that same code base to multiple people. Um, that would be a high gross margin business. That's a good signal that is a product-based business. Um, uh, will most likely have a much bigger, better shot at becoming a huge company. Um, and then you have services-based businesses, which we'll sort of see uh, in the gross margin that um, have much lower gross margins. Uh, and the reason for that is you're developing a lot of custom code uh, each time. Um, that, would, that would have signaled to me at the time that the company wasn't in a scalable position. Um, uh, and then the other thing that gross margin uh, really signals is just the attractiveness of the business in the long run, right? Uh, as an investor, um, um, you invest in wildly loss-making businesses. Today, we're still loss-making at HyperScience. We make our business out of losing money every day. 
but you do it because you believe that if you get enough scale, enough customers over time, um, that it will pay off uh, uh, massively. Um, and you sort of, there's no better company that shows that than the Salesforce. For a long time, even when Salesforce was public, it was losing a ton of money. Um, uh, but that's because it was investing massively in two things, uh, product development and growth. And growth, um, you pay for at the beginning and you get at the end, right? Uh, uh, which brings me to my next one, which is a uh, next KPI is customer acquisition cost or CAC. Um, customer acquisition cost is the amount you pay in dollars to get a, a dollar of revenue back. Um, in the uh, sort of series C stage market, um, the best benchmark is a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, I spend a dollar to get a dollar. Um, to give you a sense, that costs us about half a million dollars. And we're, we're right on benchmark, by the way. Um, so to, to, uh, uh, um, I say our average deal is half a million dollars. Our average land initial sell is, um, is 300,000. But we pay about $300,000 to get that deal. So the first year is just totally loss making. So actually the faster we grow, the more money we lose um, because you'll always grow faster than your base, uh, well, hopefully. Um, so whilst you're in that growth, mate, growth mode, uh, you're losing more and more money um, if you've got a ratio which is one-to-one uh, uh, -one or even worse. Um, if it was two-to-one, it would signal to me that uh, it was too difficult to sell this product. Um, it was just... Uh, too much of a lift to sell it. If it's less than one-to-one, -one, fantastic, but we were right on average and we've managed to keep that. But that's a key KPI. How hard is it to sell and how much money will you make over time? Um, the inverse of churn, uh, which you look for a, from a KPI is customer lifetime. Um, uh, when churn is zero, that's uh, an, a number you can't calculate, unfortunately. Um, but you make some form of bet of how long you think customers will stick around for. And um, we find our software, which was true, sort of when I was doing the diligence, very sticky. Um, and that's a KPI that is a key thing. Like how long do you think customers will actually be using it? Um, and then obviously the last thing uh, that I would say is a key KPI is usage. Um, and usage is really, uh, you'll see, and anytime you see usage, you'll always, the easiest way to, to show data on usage is the upward facing chart of usage over time. Um, but actually the more interesting chart is, um, uh, uh, either at a customer level, um, so whether customers themselves are, join, uh, are growing um, or you're just adding more customers. So our co uh, is a specific cohort of customers using the product more or are you just adding more customers? If a cohort of customers is using the product more, that's more interesting. Um, uh, um, and then uh, the, the other area is just, yeah, number of customers you're growing. So there, there are a few KPIs that I look at as both when I was doing investing and when I was trying to analyze a potential company to join. Super helpful, Charlie. And we're getting a bunch of questions um, that have to do with some of your recent comments. So I want to go through a couple of those. Um, uh, James Hendren is asking, what are key mistakes that you've seen young companies make when trying to raise capital? maybe both from your perspective as a former investor and also now as an operator. Yeah, key mistakes when trying to raise capital. Um, that's a very good question. Um, I think two come to mind. The first is around story and the second around who you target. Um, so, 
in fact, I'll start with the second of who you target. I think the, the key thing is, it's just like, um, uh, and I, I, I always relate a lot back to sales, but it's just like selling a product. Um, you want to make sure there's good overlap between the product you're selling and the buyer you're reaching out to. Um, and that is incredibly important in, uh, um, in investing. And I see a ton of mistakes. People just want to go straight to Sequoia or they want an introduction to this person. And you reach out to someone on LinkedIn and say, can you give me an introduction to this famous investor? And you really haven't thought that through. They don't know FinTech or they're not a series A stage invest investor. Um, so I think what I would refer to uh, as product market fit between uh, your company and the investor base is a really important thing. And that requires a lot of research. Um, we raised our series C um, and that is in automation software, right? You'd think that is the biggest market you could possibly go out to um, uh, in terms of overlap with venture investors. Uh, we, we, we are in a series A stage company. We, we sort of know who we are and it's the big, one of the biggest areas of investment right now in PC. But even we really targeted people. We didn't look at uh, um, if someone had invested in a competitor. Um, we didn't speak to them, not just because of competitive fears, but we thought we'd be wasting our time. Um, and the second you start to get, I, I hate to say it, but it's a, the VC community is very much a tight knit community. And the second you get one, no, that spreads very, very quickly. So if you go to someone, um, uh, uh, I'm not going to sort of say who we didn't go to, but if you go to someone that you're pretty sure is going to say no to you, that is going to set things off really badly. You're going to feel less confident. You're going to look less confident and the market's going to get a very bad signal. Um, so actually being cautious with those calls and taking um, even if someone reaches out to you being willing to turn some down that you know is just going to end up it's 95 percent chance just not going to end up right um, uh, i think that fit um, uh, really matters um, and then the second thing is i think that that story really matters um, and there's two sides to this uh, and i think people get it wrong all the time um, uh, on both sides the first is you're a startup, um, or, or sort of if you're doing this, you're a startup. Uh, and the, the role of a startup is to sell a vision. And if you get enough people to buy into that vision, and that vision can adapt over time, but if you get enough people to buy into that vision, you, you make a real company. The people you need to buy and buy in are not just investors, they're customers, they're um, uh, employees. But you have to rally people around a story. And so you have to be willing to sort of suspend that, um, uh, that distance or that delta between what you actually do and what you're going to do, right? So you heard me earlier speak about that story of like, we do something very mundane right now and we have a giant vision. And you have to have both sides of that. And the further or the earlier on you are in the uh, fundraising landscape, the bigger that delta is. Um, when you're a series A company, don't speak about targeting a $1 billion market because that's what you think you're going to be able to build in the next year. No one's going to be interested by that. They want to know, like, this is a tangible route to this, and then that is a tangible route to that. And that flow and that um, uh, story is a good thing. And then the second side of story is, why can you do that? Um, how do you position yourself? So what I didn't tell you earlier is our story of why we think we can go from uh, document-based uh, processes to doing end-to-end -end processes. But when we go out fundraising, that is a key part of it. Um, uh, why do we have the credibility to do that? And that's where you talk about a lot of the KPIs that we came up with earlier, no churn, 
customers believing us. Um, we also talk about the idea, we don't talk about this with customers, but we do with investors, the idea of um, data, owning the flow of data into an organization being somewhat of a Trojan horse to give us right to do, do the uh, steps uh, further down the line. Um, so I think those are the things I would say people miss out on. They don't find the right, uh, uh, they're not looking for the right investors, they're just looking to take on any money. Um, they don't, they're not willing to make that jump of what is the giant vision we're trying to do here and they're too focused in the short term. And then they're not able to tell that story of um, how is that big vision actually real? I mean, the amount of times as an investor, I would go and just hear these stories. I'm like, I, sounds great, but there's just no way I can believe you're actually going to deliver on that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Charlie. That was really interesting. And we have a couple of questions um, from Ron and Raphael that are pretty similar. They're asking, you know, you described this process of, of meeting with executives and, and sort of kicking the tires on integrity and culture as, as, you, mm. um, as those conversations unfolded. They were asking yes. a little bit more about what you were looking for and how you were eliciting those responses. And then yes. ideas for how to do that when you don't have access to the CEO or the senior leadership team and you're looking at the broader company or an earlier, you know, an entry level role or a mid-stage level role and trying to assess um, fit for yourself and your own value system. Absolutely. So look, this is a question that gets not just to, um, being an interviewee, but be, being the person uh, interviewing. Um, and I do it a ton all the time because not only did I not want to work with people without that integrity, I also don't want to recruit people to the company in that way. Um, I think the best way is for very specific examples to uh, very specific roles or whoever you're talking to, right? Tailor it exactly to who you're talking to. Think of super real scenarios that could play out and ask a question related to that. So I hire salespeople all the time. I mean, we interview, I interview probably three salespeople a week on, on average. A sales, a, a, a question or two questions that I always ask them, and this will just give you an example, I can give more if needed, but of how you tailor, tailor a very specific question to a very specific type of person answering that question. Um, two questions that I would ask them, and I'll tell you the sort of the way the answers go to give you a sense of what I'm looking for. Um, but the first question is, um, uh, tell me a deal that should have got done uh, that your last company that didn't get done. Didn't, it doesn't have to be your deal. It's a deal that you saw somewhere in the company. And what I'm really looking for there is uh, an understanding of why deals do get done and don't get done. So if someone gives an answer of, um, uh, oh, this person in product just wouldn't uh, um, give on this one issue and they just wouldn't commit to doing something, right? I, I know that okay, they were trying to sell a product in that scenario where the product didn't actually fit what the customer was trying to buy and there was a disjoint and they were just trying to force something through. But I ask you, it's a harmless question of a deal that didn't get done. No one's got any concern with that question whatsoever. They've got 10 examples of it, but they aren't, the way they answer it and what they tell me there tells me how they deal um, uh, um, uh, in, those, uh, um, in those scenarios. Um, and then I say, there's another question. I do the exact opposite of that, which is tell me a deal that did get done that shouldn't get done. Um, and there I really want, and, and I guarantee you any salesperson that I'm interviewing has seen deals get done that shouldn't have got done. Um, and if they can't give me an answer, that tells me a lot about their integrity. And if their answer is an answer that um, is like, 
uh, that does critically assess even one of their deals. I'll take it if it's one of their deals, but critically assess, uh, assesses why something got done that maybe wasn't in the interest of other parts of the company or the company as a whole, um, but is able to critically weigh up and say, look, we weighed it up and we, we knew that this was a bit of a risk, but I talked about it with this person. And, and you, you can see that even if someone's done something that might not be right, there's actually a lot of new, and there's a lot of nuance in the way they answer that question. You can detect a degree of integrity. Um, you obviously can't just um, ask the question, um, do you have integrity? Um, the, the best way to answer I've always found is ask for, um, put, put people in real situations and say, um, uh, ask for real, uh, real things. Um, if you're doing, if you're, if you're looking for a diversity uh, question, tell me about the last leader, the last leader you hired and who were the three people in the front running and what did you, how did you assess those three people? Stuff, mm -hmm. stuff like that. You really understand how um, people make decisions in, in the good times and the bad times. Charlie, um, we've talked about automation and the future of automation already today, but Pat Ross has a question about your applicant tracking system. And he says you still review applicants manually. Um, would you share why? What elements of a potential hire can automation not see? Uh, this is a good question. I feel like I'm about to be sold uh, automation software for applicant processing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, look, I think my view is everything can be automated over time, but um, uh, I think it gets to a question um, which I'm not sure is, is sort of, uh, well, Pat was the name of the person who asked this question, was it? So? Yes, Pat Ross. I, I'm not sure, Pat, whether the question was sort of um, one thing that we contemplate as a company a lot, which is biases, uh, biases of people sort of reading um, uh, resumes, uh, viewing uh, uh, LinkedIn, um, we've seen a ton of data that views that, that shows that just um, pictures or names uh, massively influence the likelihood of a resume getting to the next stage. Uh, I think this is, unfortunately in software, biases exist as much as they do in people. Um, we consider it all the time with our software uh, uh, and we have to actively write out biases. Um, uh, it, it, unfortunately, if the biases exist on the human side, um, they're probably trained into the data set that trains the software. Um, so I don't know that automation gets rid of biases, unfortunately. Um, but I do think that if you can think those nuances through either from a, bio, from a software perspective or a manual process, uh, that um, that is the first step for sort of creating a bias-free process, which will never create a, bi a totally bias-free process. It should always be an objective. Um, but, um, but yeah, broadly speaking, I think that, uh, um, if you sort of consider automation um, massively speeding things up, if you could go from a world where it took uh, um, three months for us to hire a role on average, and I'm guessing the same is the opposite. It took me three months to find my role. Um, if you could speed that up and that was a month, that would have a massively beneficial impact on the company and people. So it's yet another example of how I think automation can have a massively beneficial um, uh, impact on society, but uh, it's not free of uh, its own issues. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered the question, Pat. Yeah, no, that's super helpful, Charlie. Thank you. And I actually want to double down. Um, 
I want to double down on automation and, and I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit more about it. You wrote a blog in June and I encourage the folks on the line to read that um, regarding how you believe that office work will go through a similar transformation as we've seen with manufacturing and agriculture. You talked a little bit about it, but I'd love for you to um, share more about this central role that you believe automation will play in the not too distant future. Yeah, it's, an, it's a very um, uh, interesting question because it has, and you can't, you can't answer the question without speaking about the sort of what I consider the somewhat obvious pros, but what, what inevitably is a somewhat obvious um, uh, concerns or issues with automation. Um, the first thing is, as, as we look backwards, I think backwards in time, I think we've seen uh, companies that embrace automation, countries that embrace automation, um, uh, industries that embrace automation ultimately end up in substantially better spots, right? Uh, Japan is a great example of this. Um, the agriculture industry is a, is a great example of this. Uh, outcomes for um, uh, uh, companies, sorry, let's start, let's start with industry. The outcome for the customers of industries that embrace automation um, are substantially better, right? They, we can say a lot of things about the food processing um, industry in America, a lot of bad things, but everyone eats uh, everyone in America can mostly eat affordable, healthy food. Um, that is an exaggerated statement, but um, I, I think you see my intention with that uh, uh, statement. Um, the same with uh, manufacturing. Most people can affordably put clothes on their back in warm weather and cold weather. Um, just massively beneficial outcomes that weren't true uh, before automation uh, um, uh, existed. The companies that embraced it uh, hired more people We've seen that um, and we're more successful. Countries that have embraced it, um, you look at the likes of Singapore as another example that have embraced technology and automation um, or even America uh, uh, have, have, have benefited from it. So I think when you look backwards, um, the benefits for all stakeholders in, uh, in, the, um, uh, 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 in the process have been largely beneficial. Now, of course, there's massive neg negative externalities. We've got climate change, we've got um, uh, maybe food that isn't healthy, uh, processed food. There is those, right? And I don't want to shy away from those. Um, what I don't think we've seen massively uh, historically, and I think my prediction for the future would be the same, is uh, um, massive challenges on the job front, which I think a ton of people are, are worried about. Um, some of the best, um, uh, finest uh, economists across time have written uh, forecasts that in, uh, today, by today we would be uh, working one hour uh, or sorry one day a week um, there and there'll be not enough work for everyone we work more uh, every year than we worked the year before um, and what the inevitable thing is is that change is substantially slower than you think it's going to be so one thing that I think is a giant concern right now or should be for the uh, US government is or uh, automation um, auto, uh, uh, automated driving um, or driverless vehicles um, uh, trucking is, um, uh, I think there are 3 million truckers in the US. I think it's uh, one of the largest um, professions there are. Uh, what, will, what will not happen when driverless vehicles come is that one day there is manually driven vehicles and then the next day 100% of stuff is, is, is uh, um, uh, driven by a truck. What will happen is a portion of the route, the route that is dead on a dead straight route, will be driven by a driverless and uh, um, uh, uh, um, by a piece of software 
and then the rest will be driven by um, uh, hardware or one company will pick it up or one uh, state will pick it up. And what you'll actually uh, see is that, um, which I think has happened historically, just small changes happening uh, where sure some por 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 portion of the population uh, falls out of the workforce because they naturally were going to, some portion that's young and can sort of re-skill, uh, does reskill. But the vast majority of, of, of change happens so slow that those changes can happen at a natural rate. And then when it comes to sort of office work, um, my view is very much that um, the benefit to society will be so great uh, that to some degree, um, we don't have the right to be doing it, right? Uh, no one has the right to be, other than for organic farming and its benefits, the right to be uh, picking uh, um, tomatoes if a machine can do it. The, the benefits for uh, society are just so enormous if a machine does it versus if a person does it that there's some degree of you have to balance that. And I think the, the any paper-based process, right, we do disability claims for the Social Security Administration. If that takes a year to do that versus taking minutes to do it in the sort of end state of automation, um, I think that is a, a sort of wildly beneficial endeavor to go on. Um, but I don't, uh, uh, um, I don't worry too much, and maybe it's short-sighted, but about the sort of displacement of jobs because everyone that we've seen, uh, we go in and uh, we massively reduce the time. It takes to do processes, but we've not seen a single person in any of our customers actually displace labor. Um, we've had people hire slower. We've had people move jobs, um, but not a single company where that happens. Mm -hmm. So I think automation has a ton of, concerns to, to, to be thought of, but a ton of benefit for society over time. Thank you so much, Charlie. And when you were talking about it earlier, you said, you know, we need to be really thoughtful about automation. And clearly with your passion around hyperscience and the product that you all are building and, um, and bringing to market, you think that this is a positive application of it. Where do you think we need to be careful with regard to automation? Yeah, I think we need to be careful uh, across the across the board. I sort of said earlier that there were two broad predictions that I had. One um, is on the automation space, and I'll answer that question directly. But the other, um, just as an analogy, is is that um, uh, is is really around the virtual reality space. My thought is that meetings like this, at some point in the future, will be extremely immersive, um, where we can all be in our own homes, but we we'll, we will experience. Um, uh, a meeting that feels very real and very in-person and more immersive than just a, a video call. Um, I think when you think of that, you can think of all the dystopian ways that could play out very quickly. Um, I'm sure there's a ton of sci-fi movies uh, that have been written about uh, that, that thought. Um, so I think whenever it comes to this, we have to be incredibly careful. And unfortunately, it falls on uh, one group, which is government, um, unless everyone acts sort of somewhat... Um, uh, uh, um, uh, in a good fashion together, um, it requires governments to write regulations that actually makes it, um, uh, uh, makes the bad outcomes um, less likely to happen, right? So um, there's a ton of bad outcomes in the, uh, in the software space you could imagine. I'll, I'll give you three examples, but the, the first example is, um, I'm not sure if everyone rem remembers the, um, uh, Capital One data breach uh, that happened about two years ago. That is the kind of data that hyperscience processes every day long, uh, all, all day long, sorry. Um, uh, people's social security numbers, people's bank account numbers, people's uh, names and addresses. Um, 
the second you start having software uh, processing these, um, uh, you put them in places and locations and processes that are, are um, inherently uh, exposed to attacks. Those can be attacks um, from uh, other countries. They can be attacks from bad actors within your country. Uh, but it's a giant uh, risk. And I think we've seen that uh, in many different places. Um, the second is really uh, what I got, what I spoke to um, with Pat's question a little bit earlier, which is um, you can train software to do something, but it will do what you train it to do. And that can sometimes have very negative outcomes without you truly realizing. Um, uh, the biases is the exact example I gave uh, earlier. Um, that's a very clear one, right? If, um, if, we, if we ever did my vision with AIG, where you sort of pay out um, uh, uh, insurance claims, if the first 10 insurance claims that you pay out are white males, um, the machine has learned something, right? Unintentionally, you've taught it uh, uh, something. So you have to be very careful when you're programming software that, um, especially at the point we are right now in software development, that what you program is what you get. Um, and the data you show it is what, uh, um, what you get. Uh, and then the other area is really around labor displacement. Like what are we doing as a government, as a country, as a, a sort of a, a a group of um, as a society to educate people to to do skills transfers. Um, uh, uh, Bill Gates spoke about this idea of taxing robots um, uh, to make the playing field more equal between a sort of uh, person wanting a job and a um, uh, 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 piece of software doing a job, and in terms of government uh, receipts or tax um, uh, uh, tax revenue. There's a whole load of just nuances you need to consider as that landscape changes. Um, that if we don't get ahead of, um, uh, we'll have some pretty negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Charlie. Um, James is asking, he wanted to double down a little bit on security, which you started to talk about. And he says, are, um, have you incorporated blockchain technology to protect your long-term data? Um, so at the moment, our data for the sort of Capital One example that I gave sits on premise. Um, feels like a very backwards approach to things, but most of our customers prefer that it sits on their premises behind their firewall. Um, none of them are using blockchain, blockchain technology at the moment, but um, I'm sure a ton of them are starting to consider it. I don't know too much about the blockchain industry, unfortunately, to answer a very, uh, in any way, uh, uh, sort of sophisticated answer there. But security is on our mind um, all the time, for sure. We have 5% uh, um, uh, of our company is dedicated to security, and that's we have on-premise software right so uh um that is a layer of security that the customer takes care of on top of what we do super thank you charlie totally different question for you from chris he's saying um as a younger c-suite executive how have yes. you managed any potential age bias have you have you felt that at all have you confronted it if so how did you navigate it yeah i think that's um it's a very good question. Firstly, uh, we look for biases across the board. And like I say, we, 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 we never do a good enough job of that, right? So I don't want to pat ourselves on the back or myself on the back to say that we do a good job of that, but we try to. Um, I think that when it gets to age biases, um, my, uh, my belief always is um, uh, um, that 
the phrase is that I hate the phrase, but I can't think of a better phrase. A players hire A players and B players hire C players. Um, if you look at a bunch of the folks reporting into me, um, our head of sales, he famously says this is his 106 quarter. Um, he's done it at 10 companies. Okta was one of them. Uh, he's gone in, set a company up from a very small sales team and grown it to a very big sales team. Truly exceptional. Um, there's no way that I could do his job better than him. Um, and that's the sort of philosophy I, I take to hiring, which is I try to hire people that can do their job better than I could possibly do their job. Um, and that makes me look really good, right? When I go to the board and I deliver on sales because there's somebody that really knows what they're doing, I look good. Um, maybe one day he takes my job, but if I didn't hire him, somebody else would have hired him and I would have hired someone that wasn't as good and I get, I lose my job anyway. Uh, so it's something that I actually, uh, um, try not to think about. I try to hire the best person for the role. Um, and I realize that is a massively uh, loaded, uh, uh, statement, but I try to hire the best person that we can find. Um, and, um, I try to do the best job I can do. And, uh, I don't believe those two are sort of in conflict by the fact that I am a, a young, C-suite. I think that Chris's question was actually more about your own experience and if you yes. received or felt any pushback in terms of oh, you being a C-suite executive given how young you are. Um, look, I think I was fortunate. The first C-suite uh, opportunity I was given, I was very lucky to have been given. Um, and uh, it's a strategy which I unfortunately can't recommend anyone repeats, but uh, I made an investment and it was a bad investment. Um, and I was told to go in and fix that investment. Uh, so uh, I invested in a company. It was a video conferencing company, actually. We competed with Zoom. Uh, this is sort of one of my moments I look back of as one of the toughest moments in my, in my, in my career. But I looked at Zoom, I looked at Fuse, and I looked at BlueJeans. Um, and they were all at around uh, $7 million in revenue. All very similar. This was in 2013. Uh, and I picked Fuse. Um, uh, if I'd uh, um, picked Zoom, I'd be in a very different apartment to the one that I'm in uh, uh, right now. Um, uh, but I picked Fuse. And um, after my investment there, which was as an investor, I'd been on boards, I had sourced deals, I had negotiated deals, but I'd never done everything end to end. And this was my first deal that I sourced, was on the board of, negotiated the price of um, felt really good about. And then about three months in, it became very clear that it was uh, a very, very bad investment. Uh, um, not the worst of my 10, but probably the second worst. The worst we just let go of. But this one was sort of good enough where we were like, we believe in the space. I told you about my thesis of sort of immersive uh, video conferencing. Um, so I really, really believed in the space and I was looking for a company in the space. Um, and uh, um, Nine months after the investment, uh, the revenue had gone from seven million down to four million, um, and I, uh, I it wasn't so much was told; it was sort of a discussion. But I believed that I could try and turn it around. So I went in initially. Um, nobody would have hired me for that role uh, at that point, uh, but I went in initially to stabilize the ship. And my technical title was president there. Um, I went in as an interim uh, CEO, effectively. Uh, and um, what I realized sort of uh, uh, three months in, um, and it started very difficult. My first day was laying off 40% uh, of the workforce because we just couldn't, we were just not a viable business, wildly difficult. And I had to stand up in front of the remainders and said, I've had to let go of a bunch of your friends, but this is the only path forward and believe in me. And I'm 28 years old or whatever I was at the time. Um, uh, and I gave a sincere 
uh, pitch of what I believe was a credible story of how we'd get through it. And um, over the next three months, things went extremely well. Um, and the team really bought into that. Some didn't, some left over. We had, um, I think we went down to 120 people and 20 people left over that next three months. Uh, that was another painful, but the rest of the 100 people really rallied around it and we hired um, where people had been let go. Um, but uh, uh, I think the it's hard to take a lesson from that, but the only lesson is I think if you're ever exposed to, well, I think two lessons. Um, uh, um, if there are good things that can come out of bad things, um, if you're prepared to make bets where you think they're right to make them, um, I think a lot of positive things can come out of that. And then the other thing is, if you get a shot to uh, um, uh, to really try something that might be outside of your um, uh, comfort zone, you should do it. Uh, there's a ton of data that shows that um, when given promotion opportunities, men are substantially more likely to take them than uh, women. Um, this is data coming out of uh, Oxford. Um, and I think that is a, a, a key, a, a sort of key thing for us to sit and reflect on that um, sometimes you've just got to take that opportunity. And uh, the more that we can teach that, the better, I think. Um, for those of you who were with us when we interviewed Alex and Margaret, that was an example of what Charlie just mentioned, where Margaret actually tried to get Alex to come in to Outcast multiple times as CEO, and Alex turned her down. She didn't mention it last week, but she has often said that she turned her down out of imposter syndrome at first. She was scared right. she couldn't do the job. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, she's been doing it for years now very effectively. Um, Charlie, I want to pivot the conversation again. I think we have time for about one more question. And I'd love for you to talk to us about tech in New York City. It's this, yeah. this is increasing its footprint. We, we would love to see more activity there. We have a lot yes. of pipeliners interested in tech who also want to be in, in the city. What opportunity do you see um, for tech in New York? Yeah, look, I think tech in New York has been sort of a... Um, uh, um, uh, a possibility and a, a bad joke all in one uh, for the last 15 years. Um, uh, I think that the way that it's, uh, it's the same with London, actually, when I was at McKinsey, we were doing a study um, on how to launch the London market for startups. Um, I think that these environments really come out of uh, what I would refer to as an ecosystem. And you have to look at what's present in the ecosystem uh, to know or to be able to guess what might um, uh, what might come out of it, what companies might flourish in that. So Silicon Valley is obvious. It has every single thing. In, uh, it has investors. It has successful mentors. Um, it has potential customers. You look at uh, uh, Silicon Valley Series A, Series B enterprise software company, uh, probably 50% of their revenue is coming from other Silicon Valley software companies who are uh, willing to try their software. Um, I think when you look at that, New York has a series of advantages that I think you'll see play out over time. Um, uh, the first is just the customer base. Um, we find as a company that has lent towards uh, financial services and insurance that we can just pop over, not now unfortunately, but pop over to AIG and see them or, or, or go over and see Amex or when we're doing those sales, it's just substantially easier. Um, and the knowledge base here, the mentorship here uh, is substantially better. So I think the industries that have a lot of that part of the ecosystem, customers, mentorship, 
in um, uh, in Manhattan will be the areas that really flourish, right? So you see prop tech um, developing, fintech uh, developing, um, and areas where sort of there aren't strong industries in Manhattan, uh, I think you'll see uh, develop substantially, substantially less. I think ultimately what you see is you see a lot of, um, uh, what you don't have from an ecosystem is a cheap sort of software development uh, labor market, right? So there's very little advantage in Manhattan uh, from a software development cost versus Silicon Valley. There is, it's about a uh, sort of 90% versus 100% uh, cost basis. Um, but what you often see with New York based companies is they'll have uh, a headquarter where you have um, leadership and product and uh, so the product team, not the engineering team, uh, marketing, uh, um, uh, sales, customer success sitting in Manhattan, but you have a, a actual development sitting elsewhere. So we do Bulgaria for that example. Um, so we try to get all of the benefits of New York and acknowledge what the benefits are without having the massive uh, uh, drag, which is wildly expensive um, engineering costs. We still have 10, um, uh, 20% of our engineering uh, costs in Manhattan, um, ten percent of people in Manhattan. Uh, but I think that that the, the, the industries you'll see play out are ones that are prop tech, financial services, insurance, um, and one of the key things um, that needs to have happened, which I think you're starting to see more and more, is you have to have had successful companies exited in the region. Um, and that just takes a period of time to play out. Those people become angel investors, they become mentors, they become success stories that people believe that it's actually possible. Um, uh, I've, I, I sort of, uh, of all the predictions that I've made that New York is going to be a tech hub, uh, the number one tech hub, um, uh, it's, it's, it's going to come true one day, but it hasn't yet. Um, but I think it's coming uh, a sort of long way forward. And you, you see the same in Boston, where it's a lot around healthcare and pharma. But I think it's about looking where the um, uh, where the ecosystem is. Um, a friend of mine just started a um, I don't know why, but uh, an energy uh, startup, and they've done it in Austin uh, because the ecosystem is there. Um, so I think that's sort of the way to think about how the landscape will will emerge over time. Charlie, it was such a treat to interview you over the last hour. Thank you so much for carving out time. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. i tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. Um, it helps us continue to share this great content. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about uh, some of the content that we're putting out there. So um, please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>